Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Before we get into our discussion on Press to Play, Chris and I would like to take a moment to first and foremost thank you all for listening to this podcast. We appreciate every single one of you and we're so glad that you keep tuning in with us buying these records, re-listening to these records, writing in, following us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We've even received a few donations from people. I don't know if anybody has noticed that on our website. We've set up a little PayPal link. I must say the amount of interest we've gotten in this has far exceeded our expectations. You know, when we sat down to record episode zero, did you ever imagine we'd be sitting down with Denny Lane? No. Yeah. What an honor that was to, to be able to fly to Chicago back to Northwestern, where you teach, and I you know, studied, to have Denny Lane, as I said on the podcast, the, the backbone of Wings. He gave us four hours of his time, four hours, because of this podcast, because of all of you, every person listening. So I mentioned earlier that your interest in the show had far exceeded our expectations. That turns out to have some ramifications for us. Ryan, do you want to explain? I will say that this show costs more than I ever thought (laughs) it would cost to run. Each episode probably costs us from $100 to $200 to produce. If you look at all the episodes that we've produced, that's a lot of money. It's thousands of dollars. If you love our show, this is real talk right now, which is why we're even doing this. We didn't even want to do this. Chris and I fought about this. We debated about even bringing any of this stuff up to you. But it's important that we're honest with you because you guys are so good to us. If each of you could donate five, 10, 20, 50 dollars, whatever you think you value each episode at or a whole season at, we're going to take that money. We're going to put it into the production of seasons three and four and beyond, as far as we can take this. Right. Because we want to step this up for you. And it's worth mentioning that we already have some stuff in the can for season three. Some stuff we think you're going to be pretty interested in. We have a few surprises planned Yeah. for season three. We're very excited about season three. We want to really step up the production. We want to step up some of the promotion. We want to step everything up. If you can find some, send it. If you can't, if you don't want to, that's okay too. It really is. It's whatever you want to do. As long as you keep listening and you're getting enjoyment out of this, do whatever you think you need to do. And that's it. Let me get off of my soapbox and let's let's keep it going and a press to play. Here we go. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We are back. Take it away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast with our season two closer, a favorite, actually, of Chris and mine, Press to Play. Chris, I'm going to toss this one right to you because I know how much you love this record. How do you feel about it? Yeah, we're going to ruffle a lot of feathers today, I think, with our defense of this record, but I think it's a really fine record. 
I do see it as flawed, and we'll, of course, get into that. But I also think a lot of the criticisms that seem to get leveled at it over and over mm-hmm. almost seem habitual or something. Like, like these critics are reading each other's reviews and just kind of copying the same sentiment. And I think a lot of it's just kind of wrong. Who knows if they even listen to the album themselves. They may, oh, I saw the Rolling Stone or I saw... Well, what? maybe they do, but they, you know, their experience is heavily colored by all the things they've heard about it going in. Well, before we get into the album itself, we're going to take a bit of a detour with a single that actually is fitting coming off of our last podcast, a movie theme, the song Spies Like Us. So, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd. Pretty goofy movie. I really like this movie a lot. <laughs> I saw it at the movie theater when it came out. It was, you know, Cold War time, so the movie was all about that. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, this is right in their prime. This is, I think, Ghostbusters came out in 1984? So this is 1985. This is right in the height of that. And this is around the time of Fletch. Oh, I love Fletch. Movies like that where... This single was released November 18th, 1985. It's a 7-inch and a 12-inch. It was recorded September 1985. So September to November, that's pretty quick record, release, turnaround. I remember it very much as a Christmas single, actually. Right. Three producers on this song, McCartney, Hugh, and we'll get into Hugh in a second, and Phil Ramone, and this thing, number seven on the singles charts, and it reached number 13 in the UK. This was actually a hit for Paul, but it's not on all the best. I remember it being on the radio a lot. I remember it getting a ton of play. What was it like having that song on the radio at the time? I didn't like the song at the time. I don't like it much (laughs) now. I was going to say, how do you feel about it now? (laughs) My, My opinion hasn't changed too much, except since then I've looked at the lyrics even more closely. It's not a great one. It's catchy, and it has a you know big, impressive production mm-hmm. sound. But, yeah, it seems like a bit of a toss-off. I can't get past certain lines like, no one else can dance like Oof. you, which just se- means nothing. And especially at this time of the year, that, seem- that one seems to come out of nowhere as well. Well, that's your Christmas single. Maybe that's why it felt like a Christmas single to you. <laughs> Yeah, there are lots of, there's lots of spy activity around that time of the year. I, I don't know. Yes, it's 
Oh, well, it, what I I wrote down actually wrote down yikes in my notes here. <laughs> yikes. And this uh, we'll get there by hook or by crook. We don't do a thing by the book. Never needed special clothes. <laughs> what the hell? How we did it, no one knows. <laughs> I guess we must have had what it took. Yeah. Yeah, yikes. At least most of the lyrics are in some way or other about spying. Those two lines I mentioned seem to have nothing to do with anything. But No. Otherwise, at least it does stick to some kind of a we're really good spies theme. <laughs> oh, and I like that little that little change up where he says, ain't nobody got spies like us. Yes. Yeah, it, that's, that's and, nice. Yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> We actually have the demo parts from the Rude Studios, so maybe we play those now, fade into a little bit of the actual song. friend of ours from the internet, a guy named Matt, sent a bunch of great links about this album and this single. So Landis is telling this story. The, the movie's done. He's locked picture. It's ready to come out. And he gets a call. It's like, hey, Paul McCartney's on the phone for you. And he, you know, his assistant freaks out. He's freaking out. And Paul's like, you know, hey, man, I got a perfect song for your movie <laughs> I'm gonna ship it over and you know this is not the time of the internet it's 1985 so you have to get the tape and mail it out and a week later he gets it and Landis says he hears this thing and I think we should actually play the clip of him describing it here instead of me telling the story because it is hilarious I get uh, this call from Mark Kent and he goes John great news the movie's finished mix scored cut done Titles, Elmer Bernstein score, done. He says, Paul McCartney wants to write the title song. He loves the movie. What are you talking about? The, the movie's finished. Yeah, but Paul McCartney wants to write the title song. And I'm going, but where would the titles? What? And he goes, John, Paul, will you just talk to him? I mean, you have to understand. I saw the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl in 1965. So for me, also the Beatles are like Christ. I mean, yeah, they, you yeah, know, yeah, totally. Lennon was right, you know. And it's like, what? You know, I'm thinking, it was so strange. I'm like, what? So anyway, I said, there is no place for a song. Get out of here. Like, Goodbye. So my secretary, why is she knocking on doors? She comes in. <laughs> ah! 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 Like, what? Paul McCartney's on the phone. Ah! So I'm like, Paul McCartney. Ah! Like, hello? 
And it's Paul McCartney. I love the picture. I can't wait to do this. And I said, well, see, Mr. McCartney. I said, there's, there's no place for a song. He goes, no, no, but I just think it would be great to have a song. It would be a great song. You love the song. And it's Paul, I just folded. It was like Paul McCartney. Right. And so I go, well, I just, but Paul, there's no, he goes, tell you what, I'll, I'll record a song. And you tell me if you like it. <laughs> well, I don't think, great. Goodbye, Cliff. <laughs> Get a call from Warner Brothers. Wonderful. Paul's excited. I go, what are you talking about? So about a week later, I'm sent the dad. And I put it on, and it's the song, Spies Like Us. Yeah. It's a terrible song. And it's like, dun, 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 dun. Boring and stupid, and I hate this song. <laughs> dun, dun. And then it goes into a very rocking chorus. Yeah. The chorus is great. But the song is Spies Like Us. Like, really? Like, what is it? So I realized, well, I have no obligation. I'll just tell Paul I, I, I wasn't crazy about the song. Yeah! Paul McCartney's on the phone! Ah! And I'm like, ah! Hello? Paul says, well? And I go, well, you know what, Paul? He goes, aren't you excited? I'm excited! It's the best thing I've written since John died! And I'm like, I love the song, Paul! I think the song is wonderful! I just completely folded. I just folded. Like Chamberlain. And now I think, what the fuck am I going to do with this song? <laughs> it gets worse. The story gets worse. Today. I ended up putting it in the end credits, and I started it with the chorus, because the chorus is rock. There you go. So it was fine. And that song was number one in the UK. You know, but terrible song. And, and But it was Paul McCartney, you know? And it was like, I, I didn't... I don't see how anyone so that's what, anywhere... To, but like Stanley different. Kubrick and Paul McCartney, when they're on the phone, it's like, whatever you want, you know? Because of that, because of this little story, it's over the final credits of Spies Like Us. And, like we just said, it's a hit for Paul. An actual hit. Yeah, including a pretty fancy little 12-inch single. So, in a way, if you want to pull it back to the movie world, this maybe this is Paul saying, okay, well, the last movie I made wasn't so good. Maybe he's trying to redeem himself in a way. I don't know. Well, he's always enjoyed contributing songs to movies. That's true. And, you know, as we know, some of his best songs are rejected movie songs. So, to what extent, to your ear, is this a preview of the sound of Press to Play? In the sense that the drum tone definitely signals to me that we are in what you refer to as the high 80s production era. You can definitely hear more of Hugh Padgham there than Phil Ramone. I'm not sure what Phil Ramone even had to do with yeah, this. Yeah, who knows? Maybe he just hung out. So that's that. We're talking the gated reverb drum sound, which you know was mu- used famously on In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. Also produced by Hugh Padgham. Because I've been talking to the people that you call produced like everything yes it's really quite a remarkable discography the police ecstasy genesis phil collins bowie i could go on and on and on
and big hits like The Fix, One Thing Leads to Another. And you mentioned Bowie, he didn't just produce some Bowie, he produced Blue Jean, or at least the album that Blue Jean is on. some of the biggest hits of the day and he was really defining the sound of the era and as a matter of fact his work is very far from being the worst of the era in fact it's these are some of the better examples of 80s production absolutely now there are some exceptions maybe you know it's it's easy to pick on invisible touch or no jacket required but i think these police records especially and even some of the Genesis stuff, actually, and early the earlier Phil Collins solo albums, this is impressive production work and really innovative. Well, you mentioned The Police. Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. Easily my two favorite Police albums. Easily. So, Chris, you had mentioned to me that you dug into his production discography and could you pull a few of your highlights off that list? Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff here. Uh, English Settlement by XTC 1982. That's great. I already mentioned uh, several of the early Phil Collins solo albums, and those really were important at the time in terms of studio production trends. One to One by Howard Jones, 1986. One Thing Leads to Another, the song from the album React by The Fix. Several Sting albums that he contributed to. He rarely produced a Sting album entirely by himself. For example, he's usually collaborating with Sting at the very least, and sometimes there are guest producers. Right. But, you know, he did some Melissa Etheridge. He did Tonight by David Bowie, 1984. He was producing Split Ends in the early 80s. That's the Finn brothers, both of whom went on to become... Are they both in Crowded House? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Both. Uh, it started by Neil Finn, and then Tim Finn ended up joining them. And I would like to mention, just because now we're talking about Split Ends for some reason that the album that he produced is it, my favorite Split Ends album, and it has one of my absolute all-time favorite songs on it, Six Months in a Leaky Boat, which is about Tim Finn's divorce. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's so good. It's this up-tempo just slice of synth pop with like a big acoustic guitar. I'd love to play a little bit of that right now. This sounds very 80s, there's no question about it, but that doesn't make it bad. You know, the Beatles actually sound very 60s. <laughs> you know, saying that something sounds like the era in which it was recorded doesn't automatically have to be a criticism. 
And I actually think that the 80s, although much maligned for the big drums and the reverbs, there are a lot of examples of 80s production that are distinctive and really high quality. And this afternoon, I just jotted down a few mid mid to late 80s records that I think are examples of this. White City Mm -hmm. by Pete Townsend. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Very hard-edged, very digital-sounding, clean, but really works. Who doesn't like Peter Gabriel so? Nobody. Uh, Talking Heads, Speaking in Tongues, and Naked. All of the XTC albums from that period use all of the Hallmark production techniques of the period and sound excellent. And finally, who doesn't like Prince and Michael Jackson? Right. So mounting a little defense of the 80s there. I think that people think of the worst examples of the 80s and... (laughs) Maybe malign the whole decade with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I'd also like to mention Skylarking in there, which is a Todd Rundgren-produced XTC album, which when we are really off, That's right. off course. But there are many examples, to your point, of really fantastic albums in the 80s. Good songs, great 80s productions, and they still sound good. They don't have that plastic, digital whatever sound you want, the high 80s maybe you describe it as. So I I mentioned all of this partly by way of introduction to Press to Play, because this album, in all the reviews, it's always held up as very typical sounding 80s. Or I even saw one review call it quintessentially 80s. Hmm. And what I would say about that is, you must not have been there. Right. I wish the 80s had been like Press to Play and White City. And so, but most of the 80s was really bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a lot of bad stuff. And Press to Play is by no means typical. You don't like We Built This City on Rock and Roll? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> now that is high 80s. I actually love the song Sarah. Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's a good record too. I really think this album is an example of good 80s production. It's an example of kind of art pop, let's call it. Maybe not quite art rock, but art pop. Yeah. And it uses a lot of the then cutting edge production techniques to pretty good effect most of the time. Now, the other complaint about this album that's kind of connected to the 80s complaint is the whole overproduction thing. Mm -hmm. What's your feeling about that yourself? Is it overproduced? No, I I don't think so at all. Maybe, okay, maybe a couple tracks are a bit heavy handed. Well, maybe we should back up and define overproduced. Is Abbey Road overproduced? No. Is Sgt. Pepper overproduced? I mean, if you don't like lots of instruments and layers, what are you doing listening to Paul McCartney anyway, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. In other words, I don't think that automatically having lots of layers and lots of instruments makes something overproduced. I guess the point about overproduction is whether all those layers are appropriate for the material. And even those cases have their charm when you're like, wait a second, this is a Paul McCartney song. What the hell is this? But should we be that surprised if we've heard something like McCartney 2 and you just hear like a sequencer or a drum machine eight years later? Yeah. I don't think so. Exactly. Nothing strikes me as that much of a departure on this album. No. I mean, the production sound is new. It was of the time, as we discussed. But other than that, I think we can come up with good analogs, good you know, pre-1986 analogs for most of these songs. Before we get off the topic of Hugh and dive into the album, I pulled four quotes that I'd like to read, if you'd like me to do that. Please. When we started working on the record, Hugh came in one day and said he'd had a dream, McCartney recalled when he visited New York City in 1986. He dreamed, he woke up one morning, 
and had made this really bad, syrupy album with me, an album he hated, and that it has blown his whole career. We took that as a little warning. So that's Paul. Second is, I can honestly tell you now that I was underwhelmed when I heard those songs. I thought, well, hang on. Who am I to know, a little 28-year-old guy, that Paul McCartney has given me these songs and they're not very impressive? It must be me not being able to sort of see these songs that are effectively them sitting around a campfire with a couple of acoustic guitars. That's Hugh, right? Paul McCartney became quite annoying as far as I'm concerned. After sort of a year of every day in the studio, he's not on the same pedestal as when you started. I don't think he was in an era of writing good songs. That's Hugh again. And this last one is my absolute favorite. And I think I think this is why people don't like this record. Hugh gave a lot of bad press on this album. I don't think it's good enough, Paul, says Hugh. Paul, Hugh, when did you write your last number one? I love that. I love that quote. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> That's a lot of tension. When did you do the things that I did? Because I've done a lot of those. But a good response to that is, well, why the hell did you hire me to produce the record? Right. You sent me a bunch of videos that I watched today. Paul is praising Hugh for his engineering skills, his sound, all of this stuff. I'm not quite sure what what happened in the studio. Well, it sounds as if the people who made the album never felt quite right about it. You're telling me that the producer never liked the songs. Yeah. That's like your defense attorney being convinced that you're guilty. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's not a good scene, you know. This person's your advocate, and he's secretly thinking, well, these songs aren't too hot. Well, originally I was going to make uh, an album, and I knew that George Martin wasn't going to be available for it, really. He'd he'd said to me he was going to slow down his production work. So I, I started looking around for another producer. And I liked Hugh Padgham's work, because I liked what he'd done with The Police, and I liked what he'd done with Phil Collins and Genesis. Um, I knew that if I worked with Hugh, one thing, like the drum sound, would be good, because he really gets a real great drum sound. And it is the anchor of your album. I have a very strong idea on how I think things should sound and stuff. and. And, uh, you know, I guess I think I'm better. You know, the thing that I do all the time, which a lot of producers don't do, you see, I do all the engineering, because that's where I originally came from. But I wanted to co-produce this with Hugh, really, so that he could be free to work on the sound side of it, because that's, I think that's his speciality, really. And then I would work more on the um, artistic decisions and sorting out the songs, although we do a bit of that each. Just a silly phase I'm going through And just because I call you up Don't get me wrong Don't think you got it made I'm not in love No, no
So the other person who badmouthed this album after the fact would be Eric Stewart, the co-writer of quite a few of the songs. This was a huge disappointment to him because apparently he had hoped to produce it. Eric Stewart, though, 10CC, fantastic band. Eric Stewart has all of these great solo records from this period, too. 1980, Girls. 1981, there's this record called 10 Out of 10, which is great. 82, Fruity Rooties, which uh, I don't mind. And then in 83, this album called Windows in the Jungle. This is the chunk of time where Paul must have discovered Eric because they had a couple of big hits, that band, right? Well, yeah, in 75, from original soundtrack, they had I'm Not In Love, Mm -hmm. and Deceptive Benz had The Things You Do For Love. Those guys were really on a roll in the late 70s, and I didn't even know that Eric Stewart had those early 80s solo albums, and I listened to them a bit and thought they were pretty excellent. They sound more like I'm Not In Love than One Night In Paris. (laughs) You know, I mean, they're much more conventional ballads and rockers but good stuff and the guy is such a fantastic singer trying to get it right it's such a mystery like strangers in the night could be a travesty you're going through cause your lines pour out like a waterfall of syncopated ad-libs So carefully rehearsed It flows so smoothly But you can't see through it But when the pieces fit It's unexplainable The harmony in it It's unobtainable No matter You can bargain for One moment of bliss Is worth a lifetime of regret But you won't know it Hey, if you don't show it So make the pieces fit He was the founding member of Strawberry Studios So there's this period, 1968 to 1972 Where he kind of got into production, engineering, I think that's got to be a big draw for McCartney. I've got a guy who's a songwriter and a singer and knows his way around the studio, for sure. Yeah. So Eric had been around for a few years because he worked on Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, and even made an appearance in Give My Regards to Broad Street. Yes, he did. Something that I did not know about Eric Stewart was that 10CC actually suffered this big setback in 1979. Eric was in a big car crash. And, you know, he's, he hurt his eye, he hurt his ear, he couldn't go near music. And who knows, maybe at this point in time, he had a lot of thinking to do. Paul pulls him in on, it kind of coincides, not that it's the same level of magnitude with, with wings being disbanded, the pot bust, Lennon dying. So maybe... McCartney and and Stewart bonded a bit over some of these things that were happening to them at this time. I I don't know. You know, all conjecture. Hmm. But something to think about. Now, Eric Eric never actually badmouthed the songs, did he? It was the production. Only the production. Well, hey, if you think you're going to produce an album and somebody else does it, and that guy's not standing behind it. And if the person who does it goes in a very different direction than you had in mind, 
And he must have felt some ownership over those songs and to be sort of shut out like that. Yeah. I disagree with you, Padgham, about this being a bad batch of songs. I don't know what he's talking about. And what, what was he hearing when he heard these 13 or 14 excellent songs? Yeah, wouldn't you love to hear the demos, though, to really judge him on that? My goodness. I mean, he brings you, he brings you footprints. He brings you stranglehold. He brings you tough on a tightrope. All these great songs. And your reaction is, hmm, not very impressive. He, again, he was 28 years old. Like, and he had all these hits. And the music business is a, is a business of egos. So He was used to working with real songwriters like Phil Collins. Right. I mean, Phil's on this album. Actually, to call back a bit, Split Ends, keyboardist is on this record. Like, there's a lot of guests, and you can hear McCartney really trying to go for the band thing again. He has Jerry Marotta on a lot of these tracks, and a lot of them were recorded live in the studio, the the rhythm section at least. And that's a Peter Gabriel session man. So all of those albums you're mentioning that Hugh is on, he's brought a lot of that blood in here. Jerry Murata played on all kinds of stuff. I was looking at his discography from the time. He played on several of Peter Gabriel's early 80s albums. He played on several Hall & Oates albums, really key albums like Voices and Private Eyes. Oh. Yeah, he was working with Tony Levin a lot. And there's some odd one-offs down here. Elvis Costello's Spike. Mm, I love that album too. Dream Academy. Mm. Worked with Tim Finn. Rick Springfield, Hard to Hold. Heard of him. Yeah. Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, 1985. No so, kidding. Yeah, so one year before Press to Play, he's playing on Songs from the Big Chair. So that's, he's bringing quite a pedigree. You know, if you look at the credits for this album, you look at the basic credits, for example, in the Luca Parasi book, mm-hmm. it's all played by basically four people. Crazy. You get some guests for background vocals mainly, you get a few guest performers here and there, and of course you get the orchestra, but it's basically that little band of three people and sometimes four with Carlos Alomar. Oh, Carlos, we didn't even mention him. He's on press. Yeah. Good times come and feel the sun. It's not true. Tough on a tightrope right away and move over busker. And the quote from Mac is, we realized that there were certain types of a guitar that neither Eric nor myself could play. So they brought Elmar in, and he's a Bowie guy, and I love his guitar work. Oh, there's some great stuff, yeah. Now, there's one other issue we should maybe, kind of overview issue we should talk about before we dive into the track-by-track, and that's the fact that we have a 10-track LP listing and a 13-track CD listing from the time. And, you know, I'm holding the original CD in my hand right now, and there's no indication here that those last three tracks... Right away, it's not true and tough on a tightrope. We're in any way special. And if you open the booklet, you see that it has lyrics for all three songs and stereo drawings for all three songs. We'll come back to the stereo drawings because those yeah. are amazing. But it's, they're treated on this CD as if they were simply part of the album. And I'm looking at the Parlophone reissue from 93, and it treats Spies Like Us and Once Upon a Long Ago as bonus tracks. Hmm. But again, it treats 11 through 13 as just regular album tracks from press to play. So we have a bit of a problem there in terms of you know what we're going to call the album. I prefer to call it the 13-song version, where to my ear, the album has this kind of grand ending at however absurd, 
And then there's this pretty sweet little encore, and the album has a second ending with Tough on a Tightrope. That's how I've always heard this album. It's true I heard the LP first, but it was within months that I, you know, when I found out there were extra tracks on the CD, I was pretty quick to get on that. So I don't know. What's your take on it? I'd say present day, they're part of the album. Absolutely. At the time, they were, you're mentioning three B-sides, right? They are B-sides, yes. In fact, I got to know It's Not True first on the Press 12-inch, which preceded the release of the album. Yeah, I think in the age of Spotify and Apple Music and whatever streaming services are available by the time you listen to this podcast, those are press-to-play songs. No two ways about yes. it. And as I say, they're included wholeheartedly in the packaging of both the original CD and the first reissue. You know, I wanted to mention that, for example, I'm looking at the original Spike CD here by Elvis Costello, and this album has a track, track 14, Coal Train Robberies, that was on the CD but not on the LP. There's no special designation here. It doesn't say in any way that Coal Train Robberies is some kind of extra track, some kind of bonus. It's just there in the track listing. point being, really, I think that we're entering the CD era in earnest now. And you start to see a lot of, in this in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, actually, you start to see a lot of this sort of conflict between the LP and the CD. Actually, Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation from 89, the CD is much longer than the album. And they dealt with it in that case by having the LP have edited versions of each track. So rather than leave out tracks, they just cut out the groove sections. Have to say, I kind of prefer the LP. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just not as repetitive. You know, the songs end sooner. But so it's a bit of a conflict. And I guess, you know, I'll stick with my reading because that's how I hear it now. Those last three tracks are like this fantastic encore. And to me, Tough on a Tightrope sounds so much like a closing track on an album. Those three songs are very good. Like they're not B-side material like they're not well in the 90s in the in the aughts and beyond like there's some b-sides that are like this should not have been released but paul's still in the era of writing great songs all of the time and well for the okay not all the time for the most part and he's burying gems as b-sides because it's again the beatles mentality gotta give them good product gotta push singles so Well, I'm perfectly happy that he left the single off this time. That is to say, Spies Like Us. I'm glad that's not on Press to Play. Would have helped sell albums, man. Maybe you'd have better reviews. Well, that's true. So before we dive headfirst into the Press to Play pool, the initial recordings of this album saw Martin Chambers of The Pretenders on drums and actually 
John Kelly from The Clash producing a couple of these songs, but it was like scrapped very quickly before Eric or any of these guys got involved. So I, I found that interesting. Friday, Stranglehold. Boy, this one comes in with a bang, huh? Great track. Now, we'll talk several times in this podcast about the whole issue of earlier mixes. Yeah. Since the big criticism of this album is that the overdubbing got out of control. And as I've already said, in a few cases, maybe I agree. But not in every case. But on this track, I have to admit there are some earlier mixes of it that I prefer where the guitar work is more prominent, and maybe even there are some guitars that got mixed later on. Yeah. And it's got this really intense raw energy. It, the early versions I'm talking about do still have a saxophone, but I don't think they have the whole saxophone section. No, they do not. final mix, as far as I'm concerned, this one's really a winner. A couple quotes I pulled. We started off this track putting rhythmic words in, using lyrics like a bongo, accenting the words. We enjoyed the experience and went on to write the rest of the lyrics. This is all Eric Stewart. Sounded great with just Paul on bass, me on electric, acoustic, and Jerry on the kit. This is a live band in the studio. Maybe it sounds like they wrote part of it in the studio. 
it's it's got a great feel to it. There are some bum lyrics. I think you you were always a very good dancer. Seems no, like a throwaway. No, I, I like that one. Though. You could justify it as you were always good at dancing around the issue or something like that. I like that. I like that. Yeah, but I think the the real issue is that not much rhymes with answer. I pulled this lyric. I love this line just straight through. Just reading it, you're like, ooh, this is this is Paul writing some good ones. Are you willing to wager a little of your life? Are you willing to take such a gamble? Are you ready to walk on the edge of a knife? Then I think we can skip the preamble. I can wait <laughs> back in the bar. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's so good. Always love that part. Now, pream- it's funny. He's got a great rhyme in there with preamble, but a bad rhyme in there with life and knife. Mm. But it's okay. It works out fine. It is fine. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really energetic song. I forgive most of these problems with the lyrics. And... Basically, this song really, to my ear, certainly the first time I heard the album, just really starts things off right. A lot of energy, really good vocal from Paul. Kind of starts the first verse with a quasi-falsetto or kind of a lighter tone, and then later in the song really kicks into his belt. Yeah, and you mentioned the horns. That's Gary Barnacle, great name, and Dick Morrissey. And from what I understand, Morrissey was one of Paul's favorite sax players, so he had him on this record. And beyond that, this was a single on the record. Yes. Released October 29th, 1986 as a 7-inch. This is a U.S.-only single, and it reached number 81 on the charts with a B-side of Angry, which we'll get back to in a second. And I'm holding it in my hand right now, actually. Ooh, okay. They took this artwork and they used it for the UK 12-inch single of Pretty Little Head. They kind of altered it a little for the cover and then they used the same picture. The one I'm looking at right here, I guess this is the US version. Since you say it was only released in the US, it has to be. And yeah, it has the angry remix on side B, which is the one I believe with the alternate horns. So many different remixes and mixes, and they were really going for it with this record. Because you, what do you need a remix for other than promotion, radio, get it to the DJs, get it to the clubs? So, well, the last thing about Stranglehold, did you see the promotional video? Weird. I had to dig, man. It was in like a Vimeo link or one of those like Russian website links. And you saw a US only single. This is the era of MTV. So they maybe this was on MTV. They're in a bar playing. They It doesn't look great. And we I actually have a recording on set of them playing the song and a few other songs maybe we could play right here. Weird, weird stuff. But yeah, I think that's about it on Stranglehold. We can mosey over to track two, Good Times Coming, Feel the Sun.
I always liked this one. Hate to harp on the earlier mixes and everything. Yeah. But there's a full-length version of this, about an eight-minute version that has both songs. Yes. In their entirety. Yes. And a, a very different mix, a much less ornate mix. I'm okay with the mix we end up with on the album. I think it's I think it's nice. There are a few embellishments I could I could do without, but all in all, I think it's a, a good mix. But it's unfortunate we didn't get the full version because Feel the Sun's a good song. I've gone back and forth over the years on the mixes and the versions. I'm just glad we have both of these tunes in whatever incarnate. Maybe we should play some of this stuff, these alternative versions right here. quote I pulled, uh, two quotes, a lot of quotes in this podcast. There's a lot that was said about <laughs> press to play. Uh, there's a nostalgic air about Summers. It's pretty a strong feeling, even for people who are only 17. They can remember a summer when they were 10. That's McCartney. It's so true. I remember being in my teens, nostalgically remembering childhood summers. Absolutely. And this song perfectly encapsulates some of that. I think both of the songs, frankly. Maybe one of the most 80 
sounding tracks on the record, maybe aside from Talk More Talk, but this one really has that 80s feel to it. It does, but a, and not in a bad way. No, 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 not, not in a bad way. It's just, it's very clean and edgy. The transients, you know, are very sharp, that kind of thing. But it's, yeah. like I said, maybe it's a little ornate at times. So the, some of the background vocals, there's a quote from Jerry, who said, We went outside the studio with one of the maintenance guys, and we were playing guitar and singing the song around like, like a fire, like a campfire. So they got everybody in the studio, and they recorded some of those background vocals. Kind of pretty cool. That little opening bit is really fun, too. Keyboards by Eddie Rayner from Split Ends. And Paul is playing the bass guitar part on the roof of the studio for whatever reason. Needed some attention that day. I guess, yeah. Just wanted to get outside and stretch the bass a bit. The window was open, outside was a spaceship. It took off into the sky, leaving a trail of smoke behind it. So this one is like my biggest revelation for this record. I I remember listening to this 10, 15 years ago, this whole album, and thinking this was like a big piece of garbage, this song. This is hands down my favorite song in this album. It is awesome. Yeah. I like it just fine myself, yeah. These are really fun lyrics. Any song that just has analog Gretsch as its own line is a pretty cool song. Yeah. So yeah, every line in this song is amazing. I love how he pulls the number from 100 to 1,000, you know, in the middle of it. Digital organ, finishing stretch, instrumentation, analog Gretsch. Clearly the time came. The plan had begun. Like, these are good lyrics. These are great lyrics, Paul. Yeah, really fun stream of consciousness stuff. And I really quite like the spoken word stuff, too. Mm. I find it very catchy, gray flannel trousers. All that stuff is actually really, it always stuck in my head. Some of those lines are as catchy in their delivery and in the little bits of pitch bending they did on them 
that it really is quite fun to listen to. And you, you walk away with it kind of stuck in your head. All you want is a handyman and all you want is quick service. Because I'm a house owner. I'm a house owner. That stuff's really good. It's really catchy. All he wants is a handyman and all he wants is quick service. Because I'm a house owner. I'm a house owner. It may be worth something someday. I hear water going through the pipes. I don't actually like sitting down music. Music is ideas. Very interesting. And that's what? It's Linda and James McCartney, Eddie Klein, John Hamill, Matt Howe, and Steve Jackson, all these guys, guys and gals, bumming around the studio. And that track is otherwise pretty much entirely McCartney. Yep. Written in the studio and finished in a single day. All instruments. And they were prepping a three-minute edit for release in October 1986, but they went with Pretty Little Head instead, which I think is just so... God, so stupid. We have that edit, and it's great. I mean, it cuts out the, the stuff that you like, the spoken word, but it turns the thing into a pop song, and it kind of moves a few elements around. It's really cool. Yeah, I like it too. All of the studio stuff is, all of the embellishments, it's all kind of baked in on this song to my ear. Yeah. If you strip this one down just to the original band, it's a bit too bare. Wouldn't you love Paul and his band now to like pull this one out? To try to do like do temporary secretary and to talk more talk? Man, what a show. You'd really have people buying beers in line, but... Yeah, I would love it, but I would be about the only one. Yeah, you and me, and like three other dudes just like, yeah, man, <laughs> talk more talk. Looking at the Luca Parasi right now, and it has Paul down as all instruments basically vocals, acoustic, and 12 string, electric, uh, bass, keyboards, drums, and it just has some background. It has, you know, the talking uh, guests you mentioned earlier. I'm so glad we have this record. I wish Paul would do more stuff like this. Just go balls to the wall, experiment with current technology, which he kind of does in the song Appreciate, I'd, I'd like to say, from 2013's new, but not like this. 
This is this is way out there. Is there another Hugh Padgham production you can think of that sounds like this song? Maybe Susudio? With all the percussion, with the sort of wall of percussion effect? Yeah, I, I would put those back to back, maybe. So, the next track on the album is possibly my favorite. Beautiful song. And definitely one of my two or three favorites on the album. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Footprints you're talking about, yeah, beautiful. So this is another McCartney-Stewart collaboration and was based initially on the idea of a magpie looking for food, which is referenced in the song. But it ended up being about a lonely old man who lives in an, a wintry place. And it is incredibly beautiful. Beautiful song. Yeah, I guess Paul and Eric, it's a co-write, right? Yes. And they were sitting there and Eric got to the line, it's beautiful outside. And Paul's like, wow, okay. And they wrote this song within minutes. It was the last one recorded too the last one hard to believe such a well-crafted little song came out in a burst like that Now, what do you think about the production on this one? I think the production's great. This this is a perfect example of really well done '80s production. Do you think any of it's a bit much? Maybe the pan, the bass pan flute solo. The pan flute played through a synthesizer or whatever it is. I don't. I don't hate it. I actually think it's rather interesting that it's in such a low register. Yes. Plenty of records at the time might have used a pan flute sample or. I don't know if it's wave-shaping synthesis or whatever. It's probably a Fairlight, maybe a sample. But lots of songs at the time were featuring pan flute-type sounds, but this goes for a weird low-register solo. It's quite interesting. I like the sonics on this one. It's a lot of the little embellishments that seem unnecessary. I like the overall density of this production, but it's the little things that come and go where it's just a, a little synthesizer lick that just 
floats in and floats out where I think, well, we didn't really need that. It's a bit distracting. It adds to the atmosphere. And, and I agree with you. This is good 80s production. Great Spanish guitar solo by Paul. And then Paul's on the spinet, the harpsichord you said it was? It's a little harpsichord, yeah. There's a photo. If you, if you Google press to play recording sessions, if you go look at the images, there's <laughs> Paul looking like a little boy in a striped shirt on that instrument. It's very funny. This track has a great percussion spread. Oh, yeah. A lot of claves and bongos, timbales, lots of good stuff on this track. Beautiful song. Good God. Yeah, that is some Beatles-level beautiful stuff right there. And great lyrics throughout throughout this entire song. These are solid, well-crafted lyrics. Nothing to pick on here, no obvious throwaway lines, what happened there. Just really focused and, and good. And if you take your love away from me I'm only gonna want it back I'll probably pretend I didn't see But knowing me I'll want you back again And again Till the word is lost It's me Only Love Remains, you hear it, the first time you hear it, you're like, wow, this is like a big, beautiful McCartney thing. It just falls a bit short for me. I, uh, what about you? Similar. I do like it. I always look forward to hearing it. I will say that I prefer the album version very much to the only other version I've heard, which is the single mix that for some reason turns it into a kind of a mid-tempo ballad. album version treats it a bit more symphonically so it's a bit more of a long and winding road type ballad and i think it's pretty excellent in some ways i just think the i think musically it's excellent and i really like the production on it and the singing is fantastic classic mccartney vocal but some of the lyrics fall a bit short and if you take your love away from me i'm only gonna want it back i'll probably pretend i didn't see but knowing me i'll want you back again you mentioned the high quality of the vocal. So Visconti, there's a quote from him. I stood next to him, him as Paul, as he played piano and sang while I conducted the orchestra. It was like having my own private McCartney concert. He never made a mistake, and each take was a keeper. He sang it live with an orchestra, Chris. <laughs> it's crazy. As he did through our love and as he did my love. This is a thing he does. He's a master. He's an absolute master. Through my fingers, what would 
trace of deterioration in the in his voice through 1986. I very much like the bridge in this song, old enough and strong enough. I was just gonna bring that up. Well, we have some more problematic rhyming here with Pearl and Girl, but I think it's musically really beautiful and really takes the song to the next level. And you sent me a great live version from Pinewood Studios where they recorded all the Bond films. That was pretty cool. Yeah. He was playing that live quite a bit when they released it as a single, and there are some good performances of it. Never, though, quite as good as the record. There are some My Love performances that are almost as perfect as the record. Of course, his confidence was down a little because the record wasn't doing well. By the time Only Love Remains was out, he was in quite a bit of turmoil about how things were going, I think. Well, a couple points on that. He didn't even want to play bass guitar in this album because he had lost faith in his bass guitar ability. Like, this is a low-confidence album. Yeah. Weird. Chris, you also mentioned this was a single. So that was released the 1st of December, 86, on a 7-inch and a 12-inch. And it actually reached number 34 on the UK singles charts. I don't remember it getting any airplay in the US. I am holding the single, and it has Tough on a Tightrope as the B-side. But the single does feature the single mix. Right. And it has quite a lot of extra instrumentation and it doesn't <laughs> okay. bump up the tempo, but it has more percussion, so it feels more up-tempo. And also, on the 12-inch, there's a third B-side, a Talk More Talk remix by Paul McCartney and John Jacobs. So here we are at the end of Side A. Flip that bad boy over if you're playing along at home. And you are now face to face with the title track of Press.
face to face with it. Face the face. Speaking of White City. So I kind of despise this one, Ryan. Ooh, uh-oh. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Why is that? Well, I got to tell you, it it has a heck of a tune. It has a heck of a, a classic McCartney tune. But the production is abominable, and the lyrics are just unforgivable. Yeah. So I, I can't, I can't, this is one where the tune's not going to, not going to put it over. Oh, you don't like the Oklahoma line is what you're saying. I don't like any of the lyrics, but the Oklahoma line is where the Oklahoma line is where it finally jumps the shark completely. You can give me what I want, I must confess. My body needs attention, my mind is in a mess. Oklahoma was never like this, never like this, it was never like this, ever like this, say was it ever like this. Oklahoma was never like this, it was never like this. Well, when I was listening to the single and didn't have access to the lyrics, I thought it was some scat, like, mm. oh, wah, wah, it was never like this. And I got a hold of the lyrics when I finally got the album, and... This Oklahoma bit comes up, and I thought it must be referring to the musical. Well, John Blaney in the book Together Alone says Paul might have been referencing the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. You're talking about Oklahoma, right? Okay, Oklahoma, okay, yeah. Famous musical, very romantic, a very romantic musical. So maybe I kind of read it as even a great musical like Oklahoma, (laughs) even a romantic musical was never as good as this. I got to tell you, Chris, I think you're giving Mac way too much credit here. It's Let's not save him. I'm giving you the thought process I went through to make sense of it. But no, I don't think Paul was thinking any of that. I think it was a dummy lyric that he didn't edit. And the whole song reads like a dummy lyric that he didn't edit. In the opening lines, darling, I love you very, very, very much. That's self-parody almost. Well, speaking of self-parody... The right there, that's it, yes part, that's lifted directly from Gary Glitter's Do You Want to Touch Me? (laughs) And you know how it turned out for Gary Glitter. Like, this is, yeah, it's a good, good God. (laughs) This is a goofy song. So I don't think you're far off in any of your assessment of this at all. I like the sound of the record a lot. Okay, now there we differ because I really don't even like the sound of it. Mm. This is the side of 80s production, not unlike Spies Like Us, that I'm not as crazy about. Yeah. But worse than Spies Like Us, for sure. I don't like the wall of drum machine. I don't like the effects. Not even crazy about the Carlos Alomar guitar song. Have you heard Hughes version so most of the re- songs in this record were mixed by Hugh this one was not there's a it was mixed by somebody else Hugh's mix of the song I believe saves what you're talking about it saves the song and the production the guitar is up front there's some more synthesizer effects there's this great outro of, of Carlos's uh, guitar it's too bad it really is too bad
This thing releases a single, July 14th, 1986, though hitting the top 30 in the U.S. So that was it was number 21 in the U.S. for eight weeks. And in the U.K., it hit 25. Press marked the beginning of a downturn for Paul on the charts. It was the first time since Back to the Egg that a lead single from a McCartney album failed to hit the top 20. So you're not wrong, man. I remember being baffled myself at the time at what he had chosen to release or what they, I guess, had chosen to release from this album. And oh, and I don't know what you know what you think of the music video for this song, but that's a big, that's a pile of tripe too, huh? Okay, well, I actually really love that video because if you think about, well, if you think contextually, that's Paul McCartney roaming around the tube. Well, the funny thing about the video, though, is that a lot of the people on the tube seem vaguely embarrassed by the whole thing. <laughs> They're English, Chris. <laughs> of course they are. And of course, the song isn't very good either. I wonder how many of them are just thinking, geez, this is Paul's new single? Right, right. <laughs> of course, some people were just glad it was Paul McCartney. I guess it has charming moments, but it's one of those videos. I mean, they're just roaming around filming him mugging, basically. I mean, I think it also didn't work because it's not AOR. Uh, album-oriented rock of the time. And it's not really an, an AC song, adult contemporary. We, those were like, that's where Paul would have lived at the time. It just, this, this, this didn't work. The, a couple things from the critics. Stephen Thomas Airline, who we mentioned a lot, stated that the track is a terrific mid-80s drum machine-driven slice of synth pop, utterly featherweight in the best way possible. And then Terry Atkinson from the Los Angeles Times stated that the track is a sprightly, sunny delight, one of the most playful, positive pop songs ever written about the joy of sex and its link with love. So positive reviews, but how many McCartney fans you run into are like, hey man, I love Red Rose Speedway, and you know what else I love? I love press. (laughs) (laughs) Not many. Not many. Not many. Yeah. Not even us. <laughs> so No, I, I think it really mars the album. And of course it's essentially the, the album's title track. Right. But I think it's one of the low points on the record. A, a record that I'm enjoying very much until I get to that track, actually. Now, I will say that as a kid, I wasn't really discerning enough to get picky about new Paul McCartney. Right. So I liked it okay back then. And like I said, it does have such a great tune. It is a great little tune. The melody's fantastic. The last thing I have here from my research is Carlos Alomar says that his guitar on the track, that's his second take. So it's fitting with this whole McCartney recording style where get in there, do it, it's done. And we're moving on. So yeah, not a great tune. Is it the worst song that we've encountered to date with Paul? Hmm. Some of the worst lyrics. Not the worst because the tune itself is so good. The melody itself is so good. Let's grant this one the, the worst lyrics award. I know we fought on Ebony and Ivory a bit. Oh, no, no. that That's far superior. Yeah, this this is it.
that brings us to Pretty Little Head. Pretty Little Head. I like this one. I mean, it's an improvement from the last track, but I actually dig this tune a lot. I dig it. This is, for me, this is like the whole bogey music thing finally worked Uh out. Aha, interesting. Yeah, I finally found an outlet for that. Because I think the lyrics are kind of cool. The tra- I enjoy the experimental quality of the track. I guess that's the right. I don't know if it's that experimental, but it's it's that sort of 80s talking heads, Peter Gabriel. Yes. Very, you know, very rhythmic and you know, lots of layers of changing ostinato type stuff. Max on drums, Eric's on keyboards, Jerry's on the vibraphone, and Carlos overdubbed the guitar part. I can't say I have any particular preference for any earlier mix either. I think this is as good as any of the other mixes. We have the album version and then the version that was partly re-recorded and remixed by John Potoker. So that newer version has a bit of a disco groove and new vocals and a slap bass. And that was the single, I believe, because they released this bad boy as a single, like we said, instead of Talk More Talk, which is just crazy. This was a single, a McCartney single. That's bold. In a way, it expresses the album's aesthetic as well as any track on there. Absolutely, it does. It's kind of slightly edgy 80s production. a quote from Paul about exactly what you just said. I think it would be all Eurovisioned if every single track was a snappy, catchy hit. So on some of the tracks, we've definitely gone anti-commercial. Bizarre that he would release it as a single, though, after saying that, don't you think? That's why it's bold. He's sort of going for it Absolutely. with this album. Did you know that this track was originally called Back to Pepperland? I read that somewhere, and I can't imagine. Was that just the name of the original instrumental the version? The instrumental, maybe? right. Not Return to Pepperland, which we'll, right. we'll get to yeah. that. We, we will get to, for sure. Yeah, so this started with Eric Stewart and McCartney making some, some grooves, right? There's an actual vibraphone part here played by Jerry Murata. Eric Stewart came up with the Ursa Major, Ursa Minor lyric and melody part. The B-side to the single is Right Away on the 7-inch and Right Away and Angry on the 12-inch. That was released October 27th, 1986, and it was Paul McCartney's 38th single and his first, which failed to chart. In an attempt to boost sales, he released his first ever cassette single. So that was a bit later, and that didn't even work. Now, I have a copy of the 12-inch right here, the UK 12-inch, and it does, in fact, have a seven-minute version of Pretty Little Head, and only the only the seven-minute version. And on side two, you have the Another Angry Remix, and right away, yeah. Another Angry Remix, out of context, that's like a funny sentence. It's Another Angry Remix on the back. <laughs> Yeah, this guy needs to calm down before he mixes, you know? It's it's out of control. Mm-hmm. 
you watch the music video? I did. It makes a valiant attempt to match the weirdness of the lyrics and the production. Directed by Steve Barron. And it features a girl running away from home after she witnesses her parents in an argument. And the, it starts with She's Leaving Home, right? A snatch of that s- song? That's right, yeah. That's and right. that actress is Gabrielle Anwar. And Paul appears in a cameo on, like, the TV, if I remember correctly. And he filmed that. Yeah, he's on a screen. October 18th, 1986, they did that one. You know, I mentioned bogey music sort of jokingly, but it's very much a descendant of McCartney too. Absolutely. Fully realized McCartney too. I know you don't love a lot of that stuff, but this has to come from that, at least the process, of, especially if Paul's on drums, right? So move over, busker. It's our next track. This is a great, great, great song. I think this is Beatles-level Paul. Don't know if I'd go with Beatles-level, but definitely like a solid wings track. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean like, I mean a beloved. This is like a, you know, like a beloved wings track. This is great. Surreal Bob Dylan song about movies. And so should we try to pull that apart a bit? We could. We have Neil Gwynn, Mae West, and Errol Flynn. So Neil Gwynn, an actress and a mistress of King Charles II in the 1600s, she sold oranges in the theater as cover for the fact that her real job, she brought the male patrons to the actresses backstage who were also prostitutes. (laughs) Pretty interesting. Mae West, Sweaty Vest, that's some Beatles in-joke that I don't even... Nobody knows. It's a Beatles in-joke, so I guess you have to be a Beatle to get it. By that point, he's been rejected by two of these major actresses. I got this from Jackson, that uh, still the greatest book that we have both picked up. So is he saying he's been rejected at the box office? And so he comes back big time in the bridge where he's saying... No one can hold him back. I want to stay with the action. Wants to stay with the action. Yeah. But I won't get it. No, because in the third verse, Errol Flynn, who is not an actress, that's an actor, being called into his trailer by, the, by a woman. So Paul doesn't get the girl at the end of this song. Yeah. 
I think it's a precursor to back on my feet. Yeah, and you can see Busker as a reference to himself. He's, you know, get out of here, you stupid musician. You know, this is where actors and royalty hang out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the scene in Broad Street where he is the busker in front of the tube station playing yesterday. (laughs) He's still thinking about that. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of, I don't know what we just say, something like Magneto and Titanium Man. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's got that upbeat goofy surreal story and upbeat kind of rock and rolly song yeah and you know i see this one as a little bit if you listen to the earlier mixes of move over busker i see it as a little bit of a russian album preview because it's really a, like a good rock band going for a, some old fa- not entirely old-fashioned rock and roll there's some funky chords in here but it the sound is old-fashioned rock and roll Speaking of old-fashioned rock and roll, we have Angry next. Angry. I think it is a Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, Phil Collins live in the studio record that is just completely wasted on a bad song. Like that trio on this tune. Song is, it's not the worst song in the world, but it's not great, is it? It's pretty bad if you think of it this way. Okay. If you think about 1986, Elvis Costello put out Blood and Chocolate that year. Good Lord, what an album. A couple years later, Graham Parker put out Mona Lisa's Sister. You know, when you look at things like that, that really are angry, and you look at McCartney writing a sort of, you know, has a kind of a compartment on his album to pretend to be angry. Yeah. I think it's a tad embarrassing, actually. A compartment on his albums to pretend to be angry. That's... That's hilarious. Chocolate. I hope you're satisfied with you You think it's over now. But we've only just begun. I asked for water. And they gave me rosy wine. Oh, I said no. And a dog that tells you fortune It's in your eyes It's in your eyes It's in your eyes It's in your eyes Uncomplicated What the hell can you do? I can tell me what to do with my 
He's sort of affecting anger, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. It's not an angry song. I mean, he's, I, you know, I'm willing to believe he's angry about it. He, he talks in interviews about some of the political things that bothered him, South Africa and other issues at the time. And it, he was, he had some, he had some steam to let off, but it's just that, I don't know, there are people who really devoted whole careers to artful articulation of anger. And this is, this is really silly by comparison. This is like writing a letter to like a major corporation and you're upset at them. I like the Larry Alexander remix, which boosts the bass guitar. Maybe we can play some of that. Maybe he's borrowing from Soily on this one a bit. Some of that bass guitar work. It reminds me a little bit of Soily, yeah. Soily has better lyrics, which is a, quite a thing to say. But yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of Soily. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of Soily. So there are several different horn arrangements on the various remixes of this. And I think all of them have something nice about them. There's that part in the last verse where there's a kind of bubbling saxophone thing happening underneath. Yes. So it made its appearance on singles, but was not itself a single.
Moving on from angry to however absurd. If you're listening in with the vinyl, the last track, but not, as we said before, not actually the last track of this. But according to me, a sort of first finale. Curtains are going to fall after this, for sure. This is a big, big number. Everyone says this, and I'll go along with it, Beatles-esque production style, with some surreal Beatles-esque lyrics. Which are inspired by who? W.H. Alden. It's basically a Lennon song, right? Custom-made dinosaurs? That's like Jurassic Park before, well before Jurassic Park. Everything is under the sun, but nothing is for keeps. That's a great, great. Great lyric. Great line. There's a lot of really good lyrics on this album, and it's a shame that it's been critically derided because I think it would have saved Paul a bit. You know, this is Paul really going for it on this album. Really? Yeah. Really trying. Wild vocal effects. You have that big Anne Dudley orchestral arrangement. And I think Paul's on basically every other instrument. Basically a yeah. solo McCartney song. And it has this, it's another one with a really beautiful bridge. Yes. That suddenly makes it into a love song. It's very strange how it's <laughs> suddenly a love song. Well, it's a, it's a Paul McCartney <laughs> song, so. Yeah, but nothing else about the song hints at that except for this kind of slightly bittersweet bridge. Something special between us when we made love, the game was over. <laughs> I couldn't say the words. Words wouldn't get my feelings through, so I keep talking to you sort of desperation there cool song though i dig it and a big grand ending we get a big orchestra swell up at the end here that was partly inspired by beatles stuff That closes out the concert, I'm doing air quotes, and then the encore begins with Right Away. Hey, yeah. 
So right away is a B-side to Pretty Little Head. The track is bizarre. It features Paul on roads in his feet. You can hear him apparently dancing around. So that's like Blackbird, where you can hear him tapping his toe with the acoustic guitar. He's tapping his feet while playing the electric piano, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a quote from Eric Stewart. By the way, check out that cool left-hand work on the electric piano, where he's accenting notes sort of quasi-randomly. I think the title's very clever, and all the lyrics are very good. Very nice guitar work on this one. Yes, I pulled some quotes from Carlos, actually. He says, I remember I put down three different solo sections on that song, but at the end of the day, Paul and the engineer had the ability to flush them together and to create new solos. When I asked if I could listen to it, some of the solos I heard were not the same solo. I know that they've taken a little bit from one solo and another bit from another solo, and it worked fine for me. And Mm -hmm. Lenny Pickett, who I believe still leads the Saturday Night Live band, he played a sax solo and it was removed, but you can hear some of it on there still, like overdub stuff, right? It's not true! Oh, oh. It's not true! Some people say she's a bad girl Some people think she's a fool Some people tell me she's no good But I'm telling you It's not true, it's not true, it's not true So that takes us to the second song of the encore, It's Not True. And if this had been on the vinyl album, maybe this one would have been my favorite song. This one is unbelievable. Well, I mentioned earlier that I got the press 12-inch before the album came out. I got it late that summer. And I went straight to this song, actually. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I wasn't discerning enough to hate press at that time, but it certainly wasn't the important thing on that 12 inch for me no i listen to this song over and over there are multiple versions there's some with a drum intro there's some where it just starts with harmony vocals guitar intro like 
this they they knew they had something with this one because it was remixed a bunch of times could very well have been a single i think an edited down version there are some versions of it that go on forever with the background vocals you had some special guests doing the background vocals right yeah you have labouche doing the backing vocals and you have lenny pickett on the sax carlos alomar on the electric guitar well the background vocals are featured very prominently in all the versions but there are some versions that drag it out for a long time in the last mm-hmm. few minutes but it's it's a great little song he brings back the ooh, ooh, ooh type stuff from spies like us maybe the song should have been on the album that nice little callback like on pipes of peace or something actually the beat of this song reminds me of like a slowed down spies like us i mean in the big sections with the big drums this song is clearly in defense of Linda, the line, if she helps me write the melody, I'll let the words take care of themselves. It's like, think of live and let die. It's, it's very revealing. Great one. Great, great, great song. And then the the final part of the encore, the wonderful Tough on a Tightrope. The B-side to Only Love Remains. I guess for me, this one is tied with Footprints for best song on the album. Yeah, it's got some great lyrics. Gives everybody a bit of a peek into Paul and Linda's relationship at this time. You know, It's got me confused and split down the middle, conflicting reviews of our life coming in. It's tough on a tightrope. And that's part of yet another excellent bridge. This is that period of McCartney, and we'll get to this in Return to Pepperland, where he's just knocking songs out. Really, really great songwriting. And so... This, this song is, what, three versions that we know of? An unreleased mix, right. the album mix with the guitar solo, the 12-inch extended by Julian Mendelssohn, and Julian says these amazing orchestral parts with some weird drums at the end or something like that. I'm fine with the album version on this. It's quite lush. It does have the orchestra and pretty big arrangement, but it's worth it. It has a through our love kind of feeling about it. Yeah. E- even more so than Only Love Remains to me. It's a bit more upbeat, you know. 
some really nice acoustic guitar sounds on this song. Yes. So that closes out the album, but this album is well worth opening up because it has quite an amazing gatefold. And the CD also features the gatefold work, and it extends the gatefold work to the three additional tracks. The gatefold basically features a drawing, a set of drawings of the stereo image for each track. So where you can listen for instruments in your headphone mix from left to right and you get a, a good sense of how a recording engineer conceives of a stereo picture with things being kind of in the background or things that kind of hover over the whole mix versus things that are in precise locations around the mix, etc. So these drawings are really invaluable and I learned so much about audio, about mixing and about arranging too from these drawings when I found them in the eighth grade. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid and I started making my, my own first records, which was in eighth grade, I would take drawings like this to the recording engineer. I thought everyone did that, actually. Huh. I thought this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So, so I made these, you know, my collaborator Jonathan and I made these elaborate drawings of how we wanted the stereo picture to be. And it was actually quite convenient to hand that to the engineer and say, look, see, put this over on the left, put this a little on the right. We want this thing to kind of be in the background. So these are really a good lesson in mixing and arranging. I encourage anyone who's listening to this album, perhaps only on Spotify or streaming service, who doesn't have access to the liner notes, I strongly encourage you to look up these liner notes or get yourself a copy of the LP or the CD so you can check these out. I should add also that I, to this day, torture my poor students with footprints. I show them these drawings and I play them footprints. I figure that's the one I can best get away with with the kids these days because it just sort of sounds like a Beatles song with a bit of an 80s vibe. Yeah. It's not goofy or anything. And so I still, to this day, use these drawings as a teaching tool in my audio mixing classes. How about that? How about that? So there are some leftovers on this album. Some good ones. Some good ones and some, some other ones. Like Hang Glide. This is part of the recording sessions, and it's pretty boring. <laughs> it's all right. It's a bit like Blue Sway. Yeah. It's true what people say about it, what I've read about it. It sounds like music for like a, a wildlife video or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's fine. It was included on the 12-inch for press. It's harmless, and it's a good call that he didn't put it on the album. Oh, it is. 
So there's a demo that dates back to 1980, and we've heard that, we've discussed that on Pipes. Now that demo, though, seems to have very little to do with the final song. Initially issued in November 1986 on the double album, It's a Live-In World for the Phoenix House Charity, which was overseeing the anti-heroin project. So this is a song just, hey man, if you, if you like your life, baby, don't do heroin. Don't do heroin. It's not a bad message. Yeah, I think it's an all right song, actually. It's one of his reggae things, and it's got a few nice turns. Yeah, it's, it's okay. And it, this was recorded after Press to Play. Yes. It's not really part of the Press to Play sessions, but it was done shortly thereafter. Yeah, and it doesn't really feel like... No, it's actually, it, rem- it feels like Flowers in the Dirt. It yeah. feels a bit like Flying to My Home. Yeah, it feels like you know, we've, we've gotten through Press to Play, and we're getting ready to do something else. Well, there is one more song that is vying for favorite song from Press to Play okay. that we haven't mentioned yet because it's not on Press to Play. And that's Yvonne. fantastic little demo we have of this song it's clearly unfinished some of the lyrics aren't quite there and he's doing sort of instrument imitations with his vocals and you know where things might go in the arrangement it's a beautiful vocal it's a very special vocal yeah so he's using head voice there but doing it in a way that really projects it's not a quiet head voice it's projecting a bit Mm -hmm. like like in a love for you right sounds really good and it's a really smoky little song reminds me a little bit of letting go at least the lyrics do very honest lyric
falls head over heels, but she says there are others. And he can't, like, let go of the jealousy, so he moves on. Horribly realized in 1994 or 5 by 10CC, which Paul plays the rhythm guitar on. whole point of the song is lost it's ter- you've you've heard that that right? version it is a real shame that version yeah. they make it into a bit of a reggae number with a lot of cheesy synthesizer and all the yeah, all the emotion that you hear in that demo is completely drained yeah it's really it's really bad <laughs> Yvonne, that is, that's a nice gem. That's, would you say that's Beatles level? It's a good song, I'll say that, and one of the best from the entire McCartney-Stewart batch. One more song to discuss, and we have been waiting a while. This is a Venus and Mars holdover. This is over 10 years, almost 15 years by the time it's released. My Carnival, recorded February 12, 1975 at Sea And Claude, you know, you, you emailed us, and this one's for you, man.
talked about this one a bit with Denny Lane, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did. Denny's on that stand-up yeah. bass. And you have Leo and George from the Meters Funk Band on the brass arrangement. I mean, the lyrics are okay. It's, it's inspired by Professor Longhair, a.k.a. Henry Boyd. It started off as a song, New Orleans. You know, we have, there's a demo of that on the Venus and Mars record, uh, Deluxe. So this is just Paul doing that New Orleans thing because they're, they're down there in the Big Easy recording. So this was, for no apparent reason, released on the <laughs> Spies Like Us 12-inch, and it was also the B-side of Spies Like Us. And there's a party mix? I guess they're going with the whole party, yeah, the whole party mix thing, and Mike Carnival's kind of a party jam song. Gary Langan. Yeah, they were trying to get a dance party, a mid-80s dance party going, with some mid-70s leftover stuff included. Hey man, I'd show up to a party with some New Orleans players, and Dan Aykroyd, and McCartney, and that'd be a fun time. <laughs> 86. Yeah, that right? sounds pretty good. Yeah. yeah. It's a love So this album, All In, did not perform very well. On the charts, it only hit 30 in the Billboard Top 200. In the UK, it hit 8, so a top 10. But it didn't really crack the top 10 everywhere else except for in Norway. Everywhere else, Japan, Sweden. You can look all these up. You know, it's, it's a top 40 record, but it, is, it didn't do as well some of Paul's other records in the 1980s. And it's, it's, just, it's a real shame, isn't it? This is a good one. I would say it's as good as London Town or Red Rose Speedway. It's a very different kind of album. Yeah. But I would rank it alongside them in terms of its quality. And I really appreciate that he was trying to do something different in the mid-80s. The mid-80s was a time of considerable you know, conformity in FM radio in the top 40 it's nice to see someone like Paul writing a song like However Absurd in the middle of that. Some press on Press to Play we've pulled. So you have Stephen Thomas Erlewine again saying McCartney is dabbling in each of his strengths just to see what works. It doesn't wind up as one of his stronger albums, but it's more interesting than some of his more consistent ones. And those aforementioned cuts demonstrate that he could still cut effective pop records when he put his mind to it. That kind of goes along with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. The Chicago Tribune's critic Lynn Van Mater wrote of the album, No Doubt About It, this is McCartney's most rocking album in ages. Much of it's catchy, most of it's fun, and it's superior to McCartney's efforts of recent years. Maybe regarding Broad Street? It's not better than Tug of War or Pipes of Peace, you think? Oh, it's better than Pipes of Peace. I think it is. Well, we can... That's neither here nor there. (laughs) So Terry Atkinson, who, you know, we spoke about when he spoke about the single press, he says, overall, the album finds McCartney as lost as usual (laughs) and steward of little help. He concludes his review, Press to Play, though it shows some signs of recovery, is basically just another in a long line over 12 years of post-band-on-the-run letdowns by a once 
almost unimaginably creative artist. I don't really, I don't agree. That's too harsh. Nah, I don't agree much. with that. He he had, guy really likes Band on the Run, apparently. Really wants to hear Mamunia again. Mamunia, Mamunia. So yeah, and as you mentioned before, Kit O'Toole of Blog Critics has contended that much of the album belongs amongst McCartney's most ambitious work. O'Toole says, Press to Play along with McCartney 2 arguably laid the foundation for his future musical experiments under the name The Fireman. So this is more of McCartney 2, and it leads to the fantastic Fireman project that we'll get to in several more episodes. So all in, not a critical blockbuster, but great songs with really good production. Like I said before, it's a favorite of mine. And I know it's not a well-loved album, but hey, that's what the podcast is about. Maybe we shed a little light on its on its better qualities. So that just about wraps up Press to Play, a fantastic record. That also wraps up Season 2 of Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We hope you had a fun time this season, and we look forward to Season 3 with you guys very soon. And let's go out with a little hint of what we might be hearing in Season 3. I thought at the time... When you walk in my life, what's gonna become of my rainbow? Now, with the help of a love and a wife, I'm gonna get on my that rainbow now. Oh, waiting for the sun. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.